Welcome to this talk from Emmaus Road, a church with congregations in Guildford, Woking and Aldershot in the UK. To find out more about who we are and what we're up to, please visit us online at EmmausRoad.com. So the reading today is from Revelation chapter 1. The revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show his servants the things that must soon take place. He made it known by sending his angel to his servant John, who bore witness to the word of God and to the testimony of Jesus Christ, even to all that he saw. Blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of this prophecy, and blessed are those who hear and who keep what is written in it, for the time is near. John, to the seven churches that are in Asia, grace to you and peace from him who is and who was and who is to come, and from the seven spirits who are before his throne, and from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead, and the ruler of kings on earth, to him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood, and made us a kingdom, priests to his God and Father, to him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Behold, he's coming with the clouds, and every eye will see him, even those who pierced him, and all the tribes of the earth will wail on account of him. Even so, amen. I am the Alpha and the Omega, says the Lord God, who is and who was and who is to come, the Almighty. I, John, your brother and partner in the tribulation and the kingdom and the patient endurance that are in Jesus, was on the island called Patmos, on account of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. I was in the spirit on the Lord's day, and I heard behind me a loud voice like a trumpet saying, write what you see in a book and send it to the seven churches, to Ephesus and to Smyrna and to Pergamum and to Thyatira and to Sardis and to Philadelphia and to Laodicea. Then I turned to see the voice that was speaking to me. This is the word of the Lord. Well, good morning. It feels good in here. Let's ruin it by talking about Revelation. <laughs> joke. <laughs> joke, 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 joke. Okay, the year is 2012, and the Mayan calendar is set to count down to zero on the 21st of December. Reuters poll has suggested that at least one in ten people is feeling anxious about the end of the world. The unease is greater fueled by recent hurricanes, unrest in the Middle East, mystery solar flares and reports that a planetoid is on a potential course to collide with Earth. The hysteria has built up to so great that the Russian Minister of Emergency Situations has to come out and publicly state that the world is not going to end before Christmas. French authorities in the village of Bugarash have had to close a mountain because so many believed that that was the place where UFOs were going to come and take away the final remnant of humanity off into the stars. Of course, the moment came and passed. The 
clock counted down to zero, and we are still, we are all still here. But it does demonstrate the fascination that we have with these apocalyptic, cataclysmic moments. More recently, and there's a picture up here, uh, thousands gathered into the desert for a Mad Max-themed post-apocalyptic festival, get this, complete with makeovers in the post-apocalyptic beauty salon. We have a 10-month-old who is teething, and I feel like after sleepless nights, why pay? I feel like the living dead most mornings when I look into the mirror. And even our very own... Matt Davis, beloved pastor of Oldershot, and Peter Burton, a decade being the worship pastor here. A few years ago when the church was smaller and they lived together, they used to play a game where if the zombie apocalypse happened, which 10 members of the church would they like to take off with them into their new utopian society? At the time, my now wife Hannah was living with them and they made it abundantly clear that she would serve no purpose in their survival endeavours. I quote, book smarts don't help you against the zombies. (laughs) And so here we gather, looking at the book of Revelation, or literally in its Greek, Apocalypsis. And when we talk about that, these are the pictures that most readily and easily come to mind. And there are strange and frightening things to be found in this book. And by the way, we're starting a series on Revelation, if no one looked at your emails. We see um, a man clothed in a robe with eyes of fire. We will meet a dragon with seven heads and ten horns. We'll meet another beast with two horns, like a lamb, but with the voice of a dragon, which I suggest probably doesn't sound anything like Benedict Cumberbatch from the 2013 movie The Hobbit. We will meet creatures with eyes in the front and back of their heads. We will meet the infamous four horsemen, of the apocalypse, three of whom are destined to bring destruction upon the earth. We will meet locusts as big as horses with faces like men, but we'll meet a central figure, a lamb with seven horns and seven eyes. And it is a confusing, misunderstood and abused book. But It is the word of the Lord. And we have a responsibility to open it up and to try and discover what is it telling us about who God is and who we are and the world in which we live. And it's confusing for three reasons. One, it is not literal. I hope that if I'm hit by a bus, (laughs) it's a weird sentence, I hope that if I meet Jesus today, He won't be dressed like a lamb with seven eyes and seven horns. Like that doesn't, one doesn't make it onto the fridge magnet, right? Like that's not how we picture him. But that's how we read about him in the book of Revelation. And it's not chronological, we'll come back to that. But it is not explained, which is probably the hardest thing of all. John goes into great detail about what he sees, but at no point does he try ever to explain to us what is 
going on. That, he suggests, is the job of the reader. So why bother with this book? And why now aren't we scared enough? Well, I would suggest to answer that question, why now? I'd love to tell you a little bit around the genre in which it's written. Because good biblical literacy requires us to read the Bible not literally, but literarily. Right? And we understand that. We all do that. We don't approach a cookbook like we approach a comic book, like we approach a novel. Right? We understand that we read different things in different ways. But all of them, I would suggest, have some truth, some moral, something they're trying to convey to us as the reader. But it's our job to approach them honouring the style in which they are written. So what is this apocalyptic genre that we encounter in the Bible? Because there isn't really anything like it around today. Well, apocalyptic literature turns up all throughout the Bible. We see it obviously here in Revelation, but we see it in parts of Joel, in Daniel, in Isaiah. Jesus even has apocalyptic discourses in places like Matthew 24. People at times in the Bible, even when it's not an extended kind of written apocalypse, they have moments called apocalypse. Paul at one point has one when he's on the road to Damascus it says that he has an apocalypse when he encounters Jesus and Jesus talks to him and so what is going on here well the first thing to know is that the word apocalypse in Greek doesn't mean end of the world what does it mean well the word literally means to uncover or to reveal or to unveil So what is happening in this genre? Well, in apocalyptic literature in the Bible, what is happening is that God is pulling back the curtain to reveal something to us. So what does that tell me? It tells me we don't always understand what's really going on. And there are moments in which we come to the Bible and God supernaturally pulls back the veil to show us some truth that's happening. Something that's going on that's beyond our comprehension. And so coming back to Paul on the road to Damascus, he has an apocalypse where God pulls back the curtain, meets him and says, Paul, everything you're doing is wrong. The very church that you're persecuting is my church. And it changes his life forever because that's what happens. When God unveils something to us, we'll never be the same again. So in this apocalyptic literature, God is opening and unveiling something to us as the reader. But to understand what that is, we have to get to grips with this literature. And all through, what's a better way to say it? In apocalyptic literature, what we have is it's packed with poetry and symbolism. And these symbols run through the whole course of the Bible. And for that reason, they're not often explained. The idea is that students of the Bible, as people who have walked with Jesus, we get to know these symbols and what they mean and what they're meant to demonstrate to us. So a great example is the sea. Right? So all the way back in Genesis, we find the waters. 
And the Spirit of God hovers over these waters. And these waters are a sign of cosmic chaos and danger and disorder. And the Spirit of God hovers over them and brings beautiful order out of the chaos. So we track that forward and we come to the Exodus. And the people coming, God's people coming out of slavery, they approach the sea, the symbol of cosmic chaos and danger and disorder. And what does God part? The sea to bring them into safety. We come to Daniel and we read about the four beasts that wreak havoc on the earth. And where do they come from? The sea. We come all the way to Revelation 21 and 22, the very end, when God has put everything right in the new heavens and the new earth. And it says that there is no sea. Why? Because the state of disorder, of cosmic chaos and danger, will be gone forever. So all through this book of Revelation, what you're going to find is these symbols that are meant to suggest things to us. Just so you know, there's about 650 in the book of Revelation. So we've got a bit of work to do, but we will get there. So returning to our original question, why this book and why now? Well, if this book is to reveal a divine perspective on our earthly reality... I feel like I could do with that right now, right? In times where we've got wars and rumours and wars, fear about nuclear Armageddon, the end of monarchs, the coming down of kingdoms, politics in disarray, an economy that is definitely not trustworthy, I awfully definitely want to know what is God saying about the times in which I live. And this book was written to a pastor, was given to a pastor to be sent to people that he cared about who were facing incredibly difficult times. So this book was a gift. It was God's gift to God's people to help them in times of trouble because God knew all they needed to live with courage and conviction was him to pull back the curtain and show them what's really going on. So I would suggest if it was enough 2,000 years ago, maybe we could do with taking this book off the shelf. Get the gift off the shelf. Dust it off and see what has God got for us in its pages today in the times in which we live. Because hope is always discovered by seeing our situations from God's perspective. Platitudes and memes and slogans can give us a shot of serotonin, but only the one who sees the end from the beginning can be the one who truly says to you, everything will be okay. Everything will be okay. I know I'm there. And so that's why we are venturing out into the confusing book of Revelation. And here's this thing, spoiler alert. I think we're going to discover two things as we go through this series. Number one, things are far more severe than you ever imagined. But two, things are far more hopeful than you ever dreamed. And that is what we will discover in these pages. Here's a good example, right? Oh, wow, that's been on the screen for a long time. (laughs) This, in Revelation 12, we... um, We read about a woman giving birth and a seven-headed dragon trying to devour the baby. So this is the first Christmas, 
right? These are our Christmas cards this year. You can put your orders online. We're going to be doing a nativity themed around the Revelation auditions for the seven-headed dragon start early November. No. This is Herod, right? It's Herod at the very first Christmas. The woman is Mary. The baby is Jesus. But what we find in Revelation 12 is that there's way more going on here than an insecure king and three wise men. There is a dragon trying to devour a baby. When God pulls back the curtains, what we realize is there is stuff far more significant happening behind the scenes. But as the people of God, we are the ones who are called to be aware of it. And in our habitual lives, when we go about our every days, when we talk about commuting into London and buying milk and Google Mail and Google Maps and TikTok and timesheets and whatever makes up the fabric of your everyday, it is so easy to forget that there is something far more significant going on behind the scenes. And so we read the book of Revelation. And here's my challenge to you. If we believe that we can gather together on a Sunday, open this book for half an hour, and then go back to the grind of our everyday lives and believe that we're going to be filled with hope from its pages, I'd like to suggest that's a little bit like taking a bottle of Ribena and pouring it into the Atlantic and hoping it would change colour. The sheer weight of it is so much. To properly mine this book for its gold and its hope, we've got to live in it, meditate on it, Let it get deep inside of us. And so our hope for this series is that we will give some coat hangers for you to hang this book on, to begin to appreciate it, understand it, see what it is saying and what it's not saying, but we will not be able to answer every question. So I want to encourage you, go away and read it. Get deep into its pages. Let the good news of it become real in your head and hearts. Let it make that journey, that 18-inch journey from your head into your heart so you begin to live into the hope and the gift with which it was intended. So that's the first thing. It gives us perspective. The second thing is it demonstrates to us simply a person. The book is not called Revelations. There is a series of visions But the book tells you exactly what it is. It says it is the revelation of something. One single revelation. Did anyone catch it? It's in the first four words. It is the revelation of Jesus. What does revelation mean? Apocalypse. What is apocalypse? To unveil. To uncover. To reveal. So what is the primary purpose of this book? To reveal Jesus. If after these six weeks you come out thinking that you know how the world's going to end and that locusts with men's faces are something to with Apache helicopters, I would suggest you have probably read the book wrong because this book tells you what it's about. It's about the revelation, the revealing of Jesus. So the primary thing we come out of this book with is who is Jesus? What is about Jesus can be unveiled to us, revealed to us afresh to give us hope. This commentary, it's called Discipleship on the Edge by Daryl Johnson, is amazing. It's fantastic. There's a whole load of sermons online you can grab this book if you want to get into it. But he says this at the beginning of the book. 
No other book in the Bible presents the gospel as powerfully as the last book does. No other book of the Bible, in the faith of all that threatens to undo us, proclaims the good news of Jesus the way the last book does. More particularly, in no other book of the Bible do we see Jesus as clearly and compellingly as we do in the last book. Let me explain. I am convinced that no other book helps us see Jesus as he is right now, as clearly and compellingly as the book of Revelation. No other book helps us see Jesus relative to the powers at work in our time, the way the last book does, and no other book helps us see him in a way that overcomes our fears and frees us for radical faith. Who wants to see Jesus afresh in these days? So that's why we're opening this book. I am, as I was studying, researching the last couple of weeks, I came across this quote from a famous um, pastor, preacher in, the, in America, and he references Revelation. And he says something fairly shocking in this quote, but I think that it's helpful to us in trying to set, like, what's the plumb line with which we can come truly and honour the book of Revelation? So let me read this to you. Some emergent types want to recast Jesus as a limp-wrist hippie in a dress with a lot of product in his hair who drank decaf and made pithy Zen statements about life while shopping for the perfect pair of shoes. In Revelation, Jesus is a proud fighter with a tattoo down his leg, a sword in his hand, and a commitment to make someone bleed. This is a guy I can worship. I cannot worship the hippie diaper halo Christ because I cannot worship a guy I can beat up. I fear someone becoming more cultural than Christian and without a big Jesus who has authority and hates sin as revealed in the Bible, we will have less and less Christians. Now, I'd suggest that there are two dangers that we fall into here. One, absolutely, we have a domesticated Jesus. And what's going to be revealed to us in the Bible is that Jesus is not domesticated. But on the other hand, we do not, I would suggest, discover a Jesus who is vindictive as that statement with a desire to make someone bleed. What I believe that we will discover is a Jesus who is able to stare down the seven-headed dragon, but as a lamb, with a desire to make no man bleed but himself, and a power to set everything wrong in the world right forever. Because we are those that follow the lamb. And so... As we move forward, this book, it brings us hope. But it also brings us challenge. As I said, this writing is apocalyptic in genre, but it's also a letter. It's a letter written by Pastor John to the seven churches that he loves in Asia. And it's a letter written at a specific time by a specific person to specific people Is it to us? Yes, of course it is, but we have to appreciate who it was originally written for. So let me give you a quick history lesson, if I can. The date is AD 96. In AD 70, the temple has been destroyed, Jerusalem is in ruins. 
Between AD 70 and AD 96, Paul has, uh, Peter has been crucified upside down, Timothy has been murdered, and Paul has likely been beheaded. Persecution has started, and then in AD 92, Domitian becomes emperor of Rome, and persecution hits up to a new level. Domitian declares himself Lord and God and commands everyone to worship him as such. He changes the name of the Roman Empire to the Eternal Empire and declares himself eternal king. All citizens in the Roman Empire are commanded to go to the temple in his honour, grab a handful of incense and throw it onto the fire as a sign of their unfailing devotion to him as Lord. Pastor John, disciple John refuses. He says, I will honour you as king. I will not bow down to you as Lord because there is one Lord. And he's sent to Patmos. Patmos is a prison island. It's Greek, but don't picture these lovely beaches. Picture Guantanamo Bay. This is a prison island and Paul is there. Paul is not there. John is there. (laughs) Paul is dead. John is there. And he is writing to a people who are living under this oppressive rule. And much of what we're going to discover in this book is it's a polemic against the Roman Empire and against every empire that tries to raise itself up against the one true living God. And what it's going to talk about throughout this book is it's going to talk about the call on those that follow Jesus to not be seduced or scared into bowing down to anything other than Christ. Even under the threat of death, the book of Revelation declares that we are to pledge our allegiance to Christ and Christ alone. Now, I hear often people talking about the gospel as a gospel of love. And I agree with that sentiment. You know, greatest commandment, the golden commandment, to love the Lord your God and to love with all your heart, mind, body and soul and to love other as self. I agree with that. But the word love has become so limp today, right? It means so little. And this became very real to me when, um, I don't know if there's any other parents to do this, but when Thea, our four-year-old, wakes up in the night, if it's before 5 a.m., I can get her back to sleep. If it's after 5 a.m., we're up for the day, right? I don't know. So the other night, she's asleep. Quarter to five, she wakes up and I'm like, I've got 15 minutes. 15 minutes, I get two hours more sleep. So I go into her room. I settle her. It's 10 to 5. She's lying down. I'm lying on her bed next to her. It's pitch black. It's 5 2. She's been quiet five minutes. 5. I think I've done it. I think two more hours. 5 past 5, into the dead of night, a little voice comes. Dad, you're never going to believe this, but I love pigeons. And I didn't believe it. And I don't believe it. But thus began another day of the living dead for dad. But right, we use love. And it's lost so much of its potency because it's a word that means everything and very little when we declare into the darkness at 5am that we love pigeons. And so what is the substance of the love with which we are called to love the Lamb? We're going to discover that this love, it's an unfailing, 
unfailing, unwavering loyalty and allegiance to Jesus against everything that would undo us, against any seduction of the empire, against any fear-mongering of the beast, we are called to follow the Lamb because nations will rise and nations will fall, but the Lamb is everlasting. And I'd suggest it's a hard word. And the only way we maybe live with courage and conviction to fulfill that word is if we get into this book and we see the beginning from the end. Maybe in these pages, if we let them become real to us, as God pulls back the curtain, when we're called to compromise, we will say, no, we've seen the end from the beginning. In the words of Billy Graham, I read the end of the book and I know that we win. And maybe with that, we will discover the conviction we need to stand up for Christ in every situation we encounter. And so very simply, this is the structure that we're going to be going through. Like I said, we won't be able to answer every question, nor do I have all the answers. But I do know that this book is about Jesus. And so as we go through the next six weeks... We're going to be jumping around Revelation. We're going to start with clear eyes next week. And we're going to talk about what is revealed to us about Jesus specifically in this book. How do we see him? How do we see him as the one who holds the seven stars in his hand? What does that mean about Jesus? Next, we're going to move on to hot hearts. And throughout the book of Revelation, there's always this challenge that comes from Jesus to not give up our first love to not be lukewarm, to not let our love grow cold. And so how do we do that even in times of crisis and challenge? Number three, Revelation 13, we're going to look at the dragon and the beast and we're going to look at what it means to pledge our allegiance to the lamb. Number four, we're going to jump into the day of Armageddon as it's penned when the nations gather for the final battle and we discover Jesus and what happens on that day and what does that mean for us this day? And then finally, as we transition into Advent and the season that was traditionally when we looked back at the incarnated Jesus, but also looked forward for the return of Jesus. See the symmetry? That's nice, right? Come in Christ. So clever. Me and Peter worked on that one. And yeah, high five. The coming, thank you, thank you. Whoever clapped there, thank you very much. Thank you. The coming Christ. And we'll look at Revelation 21 and 22 the new heavens and the new earth, and how as we look forward to Christmas and we remember Jesus who put flesh and blood on, how are we filled at hope at the promise that one day he will come again and set everything right forever. So this is why we're here. This is why we are in the book of Revelation. We are excited. And finally, uh, if the, the band are able... Um, to come up. I believe that there's a posture with which we approach this book. John said at the very beginning, he said, it was the Lord's day, it was the Sabbath, our Sunday, and he was in the spirit. He was in a place of worship and he received this revelation. Now, I believe that we can and we should read commentaries and people who know how to write this, but ultimately, just as it was given to John in a place of worship, it will be revealed to us in a posture of worship. And so we're going to go into a time of worship quickly now. And I'd encourage you to just posture yourself for this book. That the Spirit would lead us into all truth. That over the next six weeks, that it would get deep into our hearts and minds. That it would become such a force of hope within us.
that it will dispel the fears that so easily entangle us. So my thought is that this book will comfort and afflict you. It will bring you immense hope, but important challenge. And together we will grow. And together we will look again upon the Lamb, the Alpha and Omega, the everlasting Jesus, in whom all our fears are put to rest. Can I pray for you? Why don't we stand as we go into a time of worship? Lord Jesus, we come again before you. We ask for an apocalypse. Would you reveal yourself to us again this day? Lord, we know the times in which we live are not simple. But we thank you that this gift was enough to bring courage and conviction to the original readers and we believe it's enough to bring courage and conviction to us now. Lord, we thank you that we're the people that you have put eternity into. And Lord, we want to live from eternity. We want to live as the people who know that one day, one day everything will be put right. And so, God, as as a people, as individuals, but as a family together, we pray that you would reveal this book to us afresh in these next six weeks. God, I pray for particularly for people who are experiencing fear at the moment, Lord Jesus. Would peace and joy come into their hearts as they study these words again? We thank you, God, that you are the Lamb with seven eyes. With seven horns, you are perfect, Jesus. You are beyond our wildest dreams. Every hope we could ever have are found in you. Jesus, would you become real to us again this day? Amen.